Hey, I'm Barry McCann, founder and CEO of Newer Surgical. Femtech to me is novel, novel technology that's designed to improve or positively impact on women's health. It's not rocket science. Women and men are built differently, they react differently, and they have different needs. And finally, something has been done about it. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode, I interview Barry McCann, the founder and CEO of Nua Surgical. Nua Surgical is a multi-award-winning startup dedicated to creating innovative surgical solutions in obstetrics and gynecology. Headquartered on the west coast of Ireland, the company has developed a patented Sterecision C-section retractor. This C-section retractor is designed to improve the ergonomics and make cesarean delivery of newborns safer by providing better access and visualization during surgery. You are never going to believe what the current standard of care is for C-section. It's crazy. I am grateful for Femtech founders like Barry, who are finally leveling up this super common procedure. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Barry. Welcome to the show. Hiya, Brittany. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Where are you calling us from today, if your accent hasn't given it away already? <laughs> well, I'm in Galway on the west coast of Ireland. Ireland. Awesome. How is Femtech in Ireland? Is there a lot of startups? Or are you kind of a, a lone wolf out there? No, there's a few, actually. Um, even, I suppose, uh, I've kind of come from the bioinnovate ireland kind of group so that i did a fellowship there a number of years ago and that's how neurosurgical was was formed but um i'd say there's maybe three um femtech spin-offs um, that have come directly from that program alone so uh, it's definitely a growing sector here in ireland oh i love that we you know we're working on the first ever heat map of femtech startups around the world and nobody knows this yet except for me and my intern but i'll tell you and i'll tell our listeners that one of the um top three hotspots is london which I'm very excited about. So go UK, go Ireland. There's definitely some movement there in terms of women's health. So excited to see that. Um, let's learn a little bit more about you, Barry. Tell us about your background. You, you're a man. We love men at Femtech Focus. We love having men on the show. We are not anti-men. Women's health is everyone's health. But I do also get very excited to hear our males' journeys because oftentimes, you know, women start Femtech companies because they themselves had endometriosis or they had a miscarriage or they, you know. So when a man comes, I'm always like, what's your story? How'd you get here? So tell us a little bit more about your personal background and how'd you end up here as a Femtech founder? Yeah, okay. Um, I suppose to start off, um, I'm... 40 years of age. Uh, I'm married here in Galway with, uh, I'm married to an artist uh, called Tori. Uh, we've, we've two kids together. The, Teddy is five and Elsie Bell is 10. Um, so the, I, I suppose 
moving into the, the femtech space or having a company that's purely dedicated to women's health um it is doesn't feel strange to me i'm you know half my household is is ladies and wanting to i suppose make a better world for them and and you know better products better future um better healthcare and um also have people at home that i can bounce my ideas off so it's great <laughs> um but um i suppose where, where it all started or kind of i suppose my own background um it's nearly 20 years ago now in 2003 i um graduated with a, a business degree from here in at the university in galway and i suppose for the first 10 maybe nearly 15 years of my career i was working in um fundraising business development roles um some fun fundraising management and a lot of that was in the not-for-profit space um not all of it was in healthcare. Um, I, I was the fundraising manager for Cree, which is a Cree is the Irish word for heart. Um, and they have a heart and stroke center here in Galway. It's the only one that's dedicated uh, throughout the whole country, dedicated to, to prevention of heart disease um, and stroke. And um, yeah, I was with them for about six years. And um, along my, I suppose, my employment with them, uh, the BioInnovate program that I've already just mentioned, um, they were in doing clinical immersion within the the health center. And I was really, I suppose, interested to find out why are these, you know, a mix of doctors and business people uh, and scientists coming in just to observe everything that's going on in the health center. Um, So I I suppose kept an eye on the BioInnovate program for a few years and uh, healthcare is always a space that I wanted to go into. Um, however, I had a business degree. I um, probably struggled at some of the science subjects in school, so I wasn't able to kind of go down like a, a, a medical degree at, at any stage. Um, but the, the BioInnovate program really kind of, um, I, I suppose it jumped out at me as an opportunity for me to move into that space. So um, uh, I suppose I applied for it in 2017, was accepted onto the fellowship. And what you'd probably be more familiar with is the biodesign uh, program in in Stanford. And BioInnovate in Ireland is affiliated with that. So again, it just follows needs-led innovation. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was accepted onto the program. And then for a year, um, I uh, was immersed purely in obstetrics and gynecology. Did you choose that that or they chose it for you? That was the field that was chosen for us. And the, the, the program had been running for maybe seven years at this stage, and they had never ventured into women's health before. So this wow. was um, a bit <laughs> of a leap for them. So yeah. they had one team. Um, there was uh, four of us uh, and, you know, a totally mixed discipline um, uh, group of uh, we had an obstetrician from Brazil. We had a scientist from Dublin, uh, myself with a kind of commercial background. Um, and an engineer from China. And we were all working in obstetrics and gynecology and spent um, probably about three months in clinical immersion in hospitals all around the country, um, being given access into theatres, into consulting rooms, uh, just to look over the shoulder and find out what's going on, what what the problems are, um, and then spent the next six or seven months really filtering out those problems and, and the observations that we'd seen 
to, to find true unmet clinical needs in, in women's health. And um, yeah, the result was, uh, I suppose, neurosurgical and, and the, that whole space, that the journey that, that I went on for the last four years. I love that. I love hybrids of business people and scientists and doctors. So I got my PhD in genetics from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And Houston, Texas has the largest medical center in the world. A lot of people don't know that. And we literally have two downtowns. One is where all the hospitals are and one's where like the skyscraper business ones are. But we have uh, Rice University. It's a fantastic business school. And it's right there next to all these hospitals. And so once they started to merge those business people with the physicians, businesses and innovation really started to happen because previously the doctors didn't know how to make a business. And then the MBAs were making businesses about with solutions that the hospital didn't need. Right. But once you merge those, that's really when we can catalyze change. I love that. So yeah, I, 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 I totally, I mean, yeah. sorry, sorry to interrupt yeah, you there. No, but, yeah. um, it's, it's it's a phenomenal success, um, I suppose, ingredients to have all the different disciplines come in together because what you get is, um, I, I suppose, in some ways, you get confusion because you have all these people from different backgrounds and different learning techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're asking questions that have never been asked before. And, you know, so often if you're in the, the hospital, the, the, the medic or the person who's trained in obstetrics is never going to ask their peer a really kind of simple question whereas mm-hmm. I was hands up all the time going why are you doing it like that why is that happening yeah. uh, and 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 the result is you you, you get kind of, I suppose a little bit deeper than uh, you normally would with with various questions and even techniques and the thing with medicine is people are trained by their um I, I suppose the, the the seniors that are in the hospital mm-hmm. and they were trained the same way 20 years previous or 30 years previous um and once they know a technique they generally stick with it and i think yeah. you know if there's a natural lack of innovation um across medicine but i suppose particularly in in this space in in women's health yeah totally um i know that i've been taught things that i look back and i'm like why did i not question that <laughs> but it was because they were my mentor and they told me and i said okay you know yeah, so yeah. let's get into newer newer surgical i'm so excited about this the first time i ever met you and heard about what you're doing uh, it's one of those things that i love about femtech the best solutions are the like simplest ones like the duh why does it this is like legitimately a problem because certainly no way we're still like doing it that way so tell us what was your experience like when you saw your first c-section and like did that immediately spark the idea for NUA surgical like kind of give us the the introductory story to NUA um okay so uh I suppose you you've you've kind of teed it up nicely uh, our inaugural device is um, a C-section retractor. It's called the Stereocision Retractor, and it's specifically designed um, to improve the ergonomics um, and, and functionality during a, during a C-section. Our aim is improve access and visualization to the uterus um, and, and reduce the risk of complications. So um, back to your question how was my first C-section? I have to say, I felt a little bit woozy. I've kind of needed to find the wall to, to lean up against. Um, uh, and the, the truth is, one of the nurses in the room said, do you know, you look a little bit worse than the patient on the table. Um, I think I was that white. But um, yeah, it, it took plenty of observations to really get to understand the surgery. Um, is that when we we kind of had the eureka moment of there's a problem here? No, not really. And I think that goes back to the um, 
the method of needs-led innovation and, and the biodesign um, uh, program of, we looked at all the problems, um, but one of the first problems that I really saw was in cesarean section or following cesarean section, there's a really, there's a high rate of complications. There's a high rate of infection. Um, but it wasn't really until I was sitting in um, the pharmacy department of a hospital, of a maternity hospital and seeing the amount of antibiotics that they were giving out to patients as they were going home uh, or that were remaining in hospital because of the infections that were happening after after surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just from those follow on conversations. I was saying, and, and why is that? And then, you know, it just kind of was breadcrumbs that that led to, um, OK, the, there's there's multiple um problems here there's multiple um risk factors that can lead to an infection mm-hmm. um however what we saw was an opportunity of improving the ergonomics and and i suppose the the instruments used during the surgery because the tools were out of date they were for a different patient demographic uh, when we look at c sections now there uh, if, if we take the the US approximately 66% of c section patients are either overweight or in the obese category in europe it's about 50% of those patients are in the overweight or obese category so so that's far higher than it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago mm-hmm. and they're still using some of the old same instruments and tools to perform the surgery so what it what it means is and it goes back to this kind of one of our goals improving access and visualization. So those instruments that they're currently using, they're kind of inadequate at the moment. They're they're not fit for purpose. uh, And it becomes more and more difficult to safely gain access down to the uterus. Um, What it results in is additional staff members being brought into the surgery, additional hands within the incision. They're manually retracting um, abdominal wall tissue and the panis. And that, again, leads to increased risk of infection because the majority of of, um, bacteria that's found within the wound is the patient's own bacteria that comes from from their um, abdomen or comes from their skin. So if we can just reduce the opportunity for bacteria transfer into the wound um, and also reduce the need for additional kind of, I suppose, staff or assistance or tools to be used, um, you know, hopefully we can reduce some of those risk factors that lead to the complications. It blew my mind when you first pitched me on this. And I was like, so you're disrupting hands. There literally are hands in people's abdomens, holding open their abdomen so a baby can come out. Like, it's so crazy to me that that's what you're innovating on, right? Like current standard of care, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Before we get into like comparing what the current tools are and how your tool works, can you just first break down what is a C-section, right? I think we all kind of know, but honestly, when we get down into it, I don't think people can appreciate how intense of a surgery this is. So what what is a C-section? Kind of give us the 411 on it. Um, okay. And let me start by saying I'm not the doctor. <laughs> okay. So um, I, I don't want any OBGYNs to come back and, and leave comments afterwards saying we are all going to be wrong. kind of Barry. We are all very kind of Barry. He's an innovator, businessman, but I'm sure you know the basics to give our listeners. Yeah. So, I mean, look, if, if, if you look at the very top level, it's a surgical procedure of a way of delivering the baby. And, you know, you've got vaginal birth and you, you, you've, you've got cesarean birth. Um, and 
the C-section, it, it can essentially really happen two ways. You can have a vertical incision or a transverse incision or a lower transverse, which is kind of in the bikini line, um, which would, the, the, that lower transverse is the most common way uh, to deliver a baby now by C-section. So um, it's, it involves a, a number of incisions through the, the skin layers and, uh, and through the muscles. Uh, you get down as far as the, the uterus and then there's a, a separate incision that's, that's done in the uterus. Um, and really from there, it, it's deliver the baby, deliver the placenta um, and start suturing clothes and, and making sure that, uh, you know, that, that there aren't traditional bleeds in there. And I suppose maybe we can come to this later, but, you know, it's, it's risk factors then that are associated with major surgery. And that's what I suppose a lot of people don't understand is C-section is a major abdominal surgery. Um, not only are you just giving birth and you've got a new baby to look after and care for in the world, um, but you have to recover from this major surgery. And uh, another major sad is that, you know, there are 20, at over 29 million C-sections each year around the world. And it, it's the most common major surgery. Um, and it deserves proper tools and, and proper proper instruments to, to, to make sure that it can be done as safely as possible. Yeah. So a few basic questions. You may or may not know the answer, but I'm going to ask them. How big is the incision usually? Uh, yeah, it's, um, you could be anything from 10 centimeters up to 17 centimeters. Generally, um, if it's a, if it's a larger patient, um, they may have a, a larger incision and that kind of, I suppose, just kind of goes down to gaining enough access, uh, and visualization down to the uterus. Um, you know, quite often that the, the obstetrician is, is trying to leave as small a scar as possible. Uh, the, the bigger the wound, the, the higher risk of complications, um, the, the, the more kind of delayed recovery that you're going to have. So there are a number of reasons to why keep of they'll why they'll try and keep the incision as small as possible. But at the end of the day, they do need to gain adequate access down to it. So they need to pull a baby out of it. They they need to <laughs> retrieve a baby. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and and there could be you know anything from uh, this uh, I suppose two centimeters of mm-hmm. abdominal wall thickness to go down to it could be 10 or 12, 13 centimeters of abdominal wall thickness that they need to get down to before they reach the baby down here. Oh. And um, that thickness so that, is because of fat? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's all uh, abdominal fat, yeah. uh, which again is becoming more and more common. Yeah. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Now in its fourth year, the Women's Health Innovation Summit returns to Boston on September 29th and 30th. Their mission for 2022 and beyond is to draw upon the lessons learned and consider how to continue to drive momentum in an industry that's gone from being considered as niche to essential. Learn more at www.womenshealthinnovationsummitusa.com and enter promo code FEMTECHFOCUS10 for 10% off your ticket. That's Women's Health Innovation Summit USA.com, promo code Femtech Focus 10. And now back to the interview. 
I uh, recently met a company that's innovating on the baby bassinet um, for when your newborn is there, because apparently right now it's very shopping cart model where the newborn is in this like shop little thing next to the mom's bed. But women are having these, uh, like you literally said, their abdomen, like their muscles are cut open. Mm. And so to expect a mother when the baby's crying to like be able to lean forward, twist and then pick up her newborn, it's like it's kind of crazy that we've expected women for this long. So this new startup is making a bassinet that you push your button and it kind of swings over the bed for the mother. But I think that speaks to how intensive a surgery this is, is that we can't be expecting women to be sitting up and moving and and walking. Is it, is it just stitches or there's staples too that are holding her back together? It it, it can be either. Um, And that's really down to a surgeon's preference of what they use. Um, but, uh, you know, whether it's, it's stitches or staples, it probably doesn't really make a difference to the patient from, from, a, from a pain point of view. Mm. Um, there are various studies out there that, that show that uh, sutures have a lower risk of, of infection. Um, uh, but it's uh, really down to, to, I suppose, the, the clinician preference of, of what they want to, to use. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, look, I mean, they've, they've had uh, it's it's a very... Um, I'm not going to say traumatic surgery, but uh, an, an act of pa- palpating surgery that, you know, there's a lot of activity going on down in the abdomen. The patient is awake, although that they're, they're, they're numb, they're not feeling what's going on in their abdomen. Um, you know, it, it's not extremely easy to deliver a baby through uh, a small incision and that's why there's you know there's activity being pushed down on, on, from the belly up up top um as say mus- muscles are being stretched and pulled apart so there's a lot of trauma that's gone on in the wound uh, yeah. and that needs time to recover and, and yeah. you know i suppose they, they say that you know for up to six weeks that that patient really needs to be recovering but you've got a brand new newborn baby you're expected to breastfeed you're expected to, to care for it um and that's why i suppose Breastfeeding rates can be uh, can be lower with with C section patients because uh, one of the things is that they're recovering from surgery. Wow, so interesting. Why do women have C sections? Um, there is numerous uh, different, um, I suppose, reasons why. Um, some of them could be patient led. Um, you know, uh, quite often or sometimes a woman would request a C section. Um, but more often than not, it's because of um, either uh, um, for, for medical reasons. So there, it could be that um, the labor isn't progressing. So they're, they're, they're trying to give birth um, vaginally, but the labor doesn't progress. Um, the baby could be in distress, which, again, is, is, is a major risk factor that you want to obviously avoid um if if you can deliver the baby as the safest way possible you'll do that whatever way to to reduce any any distress for the infant um carrying multiples so if there's twins um uh, that, that the patient could could need c sections um uh, i think kind of i'd mentioned that the patients that are delivering these days are are larger, you know. So obesity is is a major risk factor um, for a, requiring a C section, and that can lead back to the the labour failing to progress. So they can be trying to give birth um, vaginally, but um, that labour doesn't progress, um, or again the baby could be in distress, or with fetal monitoring they mightn't be able to actually. Um, really get the, the proper fetal uh, monitoring accurate 
on some obese patients. So um, mm. uh, patients that are uh, the, the higher the obesity, they could be anything from two to three times more likely to give birth by C-section as opposed to vaginally. Got it. And so what are the current tools used? You know, I looked at your deck before we had this call and it looks like just these weird metal, giant metal scoops almost like weird metal handles. And then there's like, you showed pictures of like 10 people around a woman's belly holding it open. Like, so what's the current standard? And then uh, intro us to NUA and how how it's going to revolutionize this. So um, I suppose what's available to, to obstetricians at the moment would be, as you said, metal handheld retractors. So there's various names. You've got a Doyen retractor that would go down over the, the pubic bone and kind of protect the bladder. So that's generally a kind of a large scoop device, um, basically a, a stainless steel um, tool. Um, and then you've got thinner versions of that that would kind of be used to retract the, the upper tissue and, and various ab- parts of the abdominal wall. Um, uh, hands are, as, as we mentioned earlier, a, a, <laughs> a major hands, tool, yep. a, a tool that all the, the, the surgeons and the, the assistants have, and they quite often end up using them. Um, and uh, the, I suppose closer to what we're doing is you do have some disposable devices uh, that are being used as well. So there are various O-ring retractors that are called. So uh, essentially there's a a ring on the outside, a ring on the inside, and they're, um, uh, I suppose, connected by um, this fabric that Mm -hmm. uh, once, once it's rolled down, it helps to retract the tissue. Now, those devices essentially were adopted from just open abdominal surgeries. So they were never essentially uh, or or specifically designed for C-sections, but maybe rebranded and and used for C-sections. However, I suppose, you know, uh, feedback from from clinicians is that uh, they're not optimum. They don't um, provide all the solutions that that surgeons are looking for. and that's why sterilization is essentially the the, the first uh, and and the only specifically designed C-section retractor tool. Amazing. So I, I should say self-retaining retractor tool. So cool. And so kind of, kind of describe it a little bit to us and, um, you know, our audience will have to look you up, right. And get some online Google images, but t- kind of describe what is, what does your tool look like? Sure. So it's, um, I suppose it's, it's a, it's a single use disposable and, uh, we're going down the route of single use disposable again to try and tackle the, that, um, complication of infection. So mm-hmm. we can guarantee that our device is going to be sterile every time once it comes out of the package. And that that's yeah. key really. And, and that's why you're seeing a lot of, um, I suppose medical devices or surgical tools are going down that route. Um, uh, essentially we've got uh, a ring. So if you, if you, uh, we had mentioned about that metal um, retractor, we're taking elements of that, uh, adding a fixed ring to it uh, and then adjustable paddles to the top of it. So uh, essentially what, what our paddles are doing and that they're, they're soft, they've got a soft touch um, feel to them, a casing, um, but it's uh, adjustable and self-retaining. So, um, once our d- device is deployed, and we'll just take a few seconds for uh, a clinician to d- deploy the device, once they gain access to the, the uterus, uh, insert our device, and um, they're able to re- retract the tissue. They can adjust the, 
the level of retraction, depending on what they need to do, reduce it um, if, if they don't need as much access and which also will reduce the, the amount of trauma on the wound edges as well. And I suppose some of those are, are, are key things for us that um, by having a, a device that's strong, yet some way flexible, um, you know, has a, a soft touch feel to it. Um, we really want to reduce the, the risk of, of wound trauma um, yeah. during the surgery. I mean, if you're going to be holding open an incision for, for 20 or 30 minutes, you want to make sure that you're not going to be leaving behind any marks either. Yeah, I really appreciated that in your deck when it said like soft touch so that it's gentle on the woman and the baby. And, you know, that brings me back to what women's health products have historically been, which is if it's functional, it's good enough, even if it's not comfortable or if it hurts or it might cause complications. If it works in the moment, it's good enough. Whereas, you know, I'm hoping the future of femtech is good enough is not good enough. We deserve excellent. And so your design, keeping in mind, like, yes, these women don't feel down here, but doesn't mean that we should just be like jabbing her and ripping her apart with all these metal tools. We should probably just try to focus on one incision and not try to make any other like bruises and bumps and all this other stuff. Right. And so I think that's the future of women's health innovation is, is excellence instead of just good enough yeah and i suppose you know further to that point is when when we looked at, at c-sections what we were observing is the assistant and, and if you take the, the patient is lying in the bed and you have your your head obstetrician or your 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 main surgeon one side of the bed and you'll have an assistant generally the other side that's helping out um quite often we were seeing the assistant spend a lot of their time literally just holding back tissue or or holding a, a retractor in place for the majority of the surgery should there be a complication or or an emergency that person is of no use to you because they're already doing a job that essentially now our device is doing and that's what yeah. we want to do we're we're bringing the the, the both the clinician and their especially their assistant back into use so they can really really help out during the surgery and be of more use oh. I mean, again, so obvious, duh, like <laughs> we should do that. Um, so where is the product at right now in your regulatory pathway? Like how soon can pregnant women expect to be able to have this be used on them? Yeah. Um, okay. That's probably the, the, the million or billion dollar question. <laughs> but, um, uh, as things are going, we're, we're very near design freeze at the moment. So we're, we're, we're practically there. We've been back and forth to the, to the US and, and to our um, clinical sites here in Ireland um, doing, conducting human factor testing. And um, I suppose we're not going to really lock in on, on the, the final design until we're really sure that we've, we've tackled all of the, the, the issues or, or any concern or mm -hmm. um, additional problems that um, clinicians have. So we're, um, we're fine tuning um, aspects of the device at the moment. And uh, our aim is to conduct some uh, first in, in woman studies uh, later this year. Uh, with the aim of FDA submission probably towards the end of 2023. Um, so yeah, we're, we're really looking at maybe early 2024 that the device would be on the market in, in the US. Amazing. Amazing. And, you know, um, 
not to get too deep into this or your product specifically, but I know a lot of femtech companies struggle with getting approved regulatory approval because they're oftentimes the first ever diagnostic for this or the first ever med device that does this thing. And so there's no predecessor. Therefore, there's like all these additional tests. Is this product something that you can relate to something historically or is it so de novo that you're going to have to do all these extra things? No, it, look, it looks like our, our device will be a class two, five, 10K um, process. So um, we have already had uh, pre-submission meetings with the FDA um, and uh, we'll be planning to have more pre-submission meetings mm-hmm. um, ahead of our FDA submission as well. So there'll be no surprises for, for them or us. Yeah. So you did, there is something you can kind of relate your device to that they can kind of reference. Yeah, we have a predicate and that the FDA have, have agreed to it as well. So, which is great. Cool. It's great. That's very, awesome. I suppose it's, it's de-risked it for us. Yeah, yeah. For listeners who don't understand what the hell we're talking about, uh, essentially, if there's nothing on the market that is anything similar to yours, you have to do so much additional testing, obviously. I mean, it's not a bad thing, right? But unfortunately, for most femtech companies, they have to go down that longer, more expensive, harder route because they're making the first ever solution to a problem. Um, So I'm so happy for you, Barry. That's awesome because we women absolutely need this. Um, Barry, we are at our time. I could talk to you all day. I think this is super fascinating, but we have two last questions that our listeners love. And the first one is we have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs that listen. And so what's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Maybe it could be something else you, you noticed in your program that you think needs a solution. Um, oh, and, and look, that is a, a brilliant question. And um, back to, I suppose, where I started and, and the, the BioInnovate program, when we came out of clinical immersion, uh, we had over 400 on my clinical needs in obstetrics oh and gynecology. Oh my gosh, um, 400? Yeah, so we spent, um, and we've we've them all listed, we spent months, as I said, filtering those down and qualifying them in different um, uh, categories. Um, and we came up with obviously a kind of a top 10 and then brought it down to, I suppose I've, I've selected one that, that I wanted to, to move forward with. Um, there are so many areas in women's health that have lacked innovation for decades. Um, so I don't, I don't want to avoid the, the question. I, I think if I was to pick one, a holy grail is fetal monitoring. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, being able to uh, accurately assess how that baby is prior to delivery um, really is going to, it, it's, it's massive. And there's such litigation in obstetrics because complications that occur and you know babies that that are delivered with complications that you know i'm not saying that that it's easy but uh, you know it it can go to court and somebody would say this is when you should have delivered or this is when it should have been a c-section you should have seen this sign um what's needed is just much better fetal monitoring the the ability to, to monitor that baby um so I think that's the holy grail, really, um, uh, in, in my view, the space that, that I'm in. Yeah. Um, but look, at the other side of it is, uh, and, it, and if, you, if, you, if you shift to cardiology for a second, um, companies, all the, the top cardiology companies, they're making tiny tweaks to stents. They're making tiny tweaks to, um, you know, um, all these various tools. There's multiples of 
the same can be in, in women's health and, and in femtech. You know, there's not just a need for us to go down one niche and, and to avoid that space afterwards. Let's keep on improving on all of these different sectors and, and different um, uh, devices that are being innovated now because there's a massive, massive market, as you know. I love that. I love that because... Uh, yes, cardiology, there's like just the smallest little tube or thing or needle or whatever. And it's like a whole billion dollar company. And then when you come to women's health, people are like, oh, vaginal microbiome sequencing. I already know a company that does that. I'm like, oh, so there's two, there's two in the whole world. Great. You know, like yeah. we exactly. so much more than that. That's it, <laughs> Brittany. And, and and I think, you know, uh, if, if we're to, to really kind of tackle femtech and women's health um you need to have uh, the startups either becoming i'm not going to say unicorns but you know becoming multinationals with with uh, a huge product line start acquiring other um you know startups and femtech uh, and it's great to see the likes of organon coming in spinning out from merck and you know they're their real aim is they want to acquire start companies. You know, yeah. I, I believe they don't have a huge R and D space. It's let's acquire, let's let's build our portfolio, and that's what's needed in this space. Yeah, hundred percent. Our last question is: Well, maybe you've already answered it, but uh, what do you think the fintech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Oh, I suppose being a startup, I'm going to say funding. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. How's that uh, been for you? Um, I think, look, we've been really fortunate that we've actually delivered everything over the last four years and gotten to where we are and reached these milestones all on grants and prize funds. Mm. It's only now that we're needing to go out and, and raise our first round. Um, and I look, that was it was probably a tough call, but it was a strategic move as well. We wanted to, you know, reach the milestones, get to where we could um essentially you know tighten our belts as much as possible to get there um and bootstrap it but now we're at the stage that we do need in investment in this space and you know i think you know be it grants or be it more startup funding um there's a lack of it in women's health and in, in femtech and and um yeah more companies moving in or more um uh investors moving into this space and realizing how huge it is um is 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 needed i know it's happening but again it's just that little bit too slow yep yep and i think you bring up a great point most of the european companies that i see get grant funding from their countries in the eu i think the us does not have these grants um and we absolutely need to take a a read about how you guys are doing it um as a you know as you're pitching now do you find any pushback from investors just kind of briefly like do you find that people are really receptive to this idea or are they like is this really a need like or you know because we often see that with female founders of femtech companies is that they just go bombarded with questions about like is this really needed i'm not sure this is so niche as a as a white male founder do you find the same pushback uh i, I certainly have had it I, th- I think um it can also depend on on who you're pitching to and mm-hmm. you know uh, we have pitched to all male um groups or boards uh, and we, we've had mixes but um, I think probably over the last two years, that's happened less. Um, mm-hmm. But there's no doubt it still happens. And yeah. look, I suppose um, I definitely don't want to finish without saying, um, you know, 
this is neurosurgical really has a, a strong founding team. I know that uh, you're here interviewing me as CEO, but um, Porik and Mary Therese, the two co-founders. Uh, and again, it's important that one of our co-founders is, is female. Yeah. Um, but we always try and bring all of us into the pitch. Um, uh, one, I suppose it, it shows the, the, the strength of the team and, and mm-hmm. you know, Pork and Therese have over 40 years combined industry experience in med tech. Um, so, and, and the both engineering backgrounds. So that's key for us and that gives credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but also look, we, we do come up with that challenge. I think less so, you know, especially when we have Mary Therese in the room with us as well. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's not that we're just kind of going down a rabbit hole, uh, a, a guy in a femtech um, space, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. Barry, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Brittany. Thank you for listening to my interview with Barry McCann, the founder and CEO of Nua Surgical. Learn more about their device at newasurgical.com. Be sure to give the show a five-star review and share it with a friend. Join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org and join the thousands of other femtech founders, investors, and mentors advancing women's health. While in the virtual community, sign up to be a Fem Pro member for only $15 a month and get access to our assets, such as the Femtech Company Database and our self-guided Femtech Accelerator. Keep an eye out for our monthly Femtech Book Club, which happens the last Wednesday of every month, and subscribe to our newsletter. Last but not least, please consider setting up a recurring monthly donation to Femtech Focus. We are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.